So anyway, Isaiah 18, verse 1. We are in the middle of this section that lasts from chapters 13 through 23, um, which is the dealing with the burdens. So we're talking about basically in every single chapter there's a different subject matter, different nation or a city or an empire, whatever it is that Isaiah pronounces doom and gloom and despair upon. Um, and you're going to get that here, chapter 18 and chapter 19, because 18 is real short, so we'll finish it and go into 19 as well. Um, chapter 18 is about Ethiopia, chapter 19 is about Egypt, very naturally fit together, Ethiopia is just south of Egypt, um, a lot of history between Egypt and Israel, so what we're getting in the Egyptian, whoa, that's much more traditional, we've dealt with this before, it's here's all of your sins and here's all this bad stuff that's coming to you. With Ethiopia, they haven't really done anything wrong. And God's not directly going to say, because of your sins, though obviously not like egregious like Egypt or Tyre or something like that, but God's not going to say like he does to Egypt. He won't say to Ethiopia, because of your sins, because you're so bad and you're wicked and so forth, all these things are coming to you. Instead, he just says, it's really a shame that all these things are coming to you. It's the same in the end, it's just... The tone of it is a little different. So you might pick up on that as we go through Isaiah 18. Look at verse 1, how it starts. The prophet says, Woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Woe to the land that is literally buzzing with wings, the insect wings. Just the sound of Ethiopia, the sound of pure nature, was the sound of insect wings all over the place. And as I say, it's, it doesn't start with... The burden of Ethiopia, like so many chapters begin with the burden of Assyria or the burden of Babylon or the burden of Judah, the burden of Israel. Here it's not the burden of Ethiopia. It's not this is the heavy weight of punishment you have to bear. It is woe to the land of Ethiopia. Does your Bible say woe at the beginning of the chapter? Yeah. Alas, huh? Ah, oh, yeah. Which is the sound that you make. It's the same thing. Ah, oh, it's alas. It's a painful kind of cry to this land that's going to have to be... Uh, it's going to have to suffer the consequences of Assyria's rise over the region, which is really what all this is about in all of these chapters. Verse 2, to Ethiopia, who sends ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the waters, saying, Go, you swift messengers, to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trotted down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. Ethiopia's king is going to send, my Bible calls them, swift messengers. Yours might say ambassadors or something like that. Along the Nile, which is the sea here, um, sea just means important body of water, not a literal sea like we define them. Just along the Nile, in vessels of bulrushes, so river boats of their era, not like Mark Twain river boat, but just river boats of their era. Not huge ships to sail across the Mediterranean, but something that's fitting to traverse the Nile. And where are they going? Well, we're going to see as we go through the chapter, they're heading to Judah. They're going to be going to, and obviously they're going to have to get out of the boats and continue on foot, but or camel or whatever, um, but at first up the Nile. And they're heading eventually to Judah in order to make a, a, potentially a treaty. They're hoping to make an alliance with Judah because like everybody else in the whole region, they're seeing the expansion of Assyria and the conquest of Assyria and the ease with which they are doing this conquest. And they're thinking, it's not going to be long if they take Egypt. And then they're going to take us. We're just right there. So they're looking to make some proactive negotiations. And so they're sending their ambassadors. They're sending their messengers to Judah. Now, if you're here last week, just to summarize it very quickly, we kind of dealt with this from the opposite side of it, which is where God was talking to a nation. And he said, you people have rejected me in a serious coming. But this was to um, 
Moab a thing. But if you send ambassadors to me, God said to them, if you send a peace envoy, send me an olive branch, and then I'll protect you. So God extended the invitation for them to extend the invitation to him. I'm giving you permission to ask for my help is basically the gist of it. So he doesn't do that here. Here, Ethiopia sends the message. And the tone is totally different. God doesn't, even though he said to Moab, please send me an envoy, send me the olive branch, and I'll respond. He doesn't do that to Ethiopia, even though they proactively send an envoy. They send an olive branch. And God isn't going to grant them peace. He's not going to give them uh, an easy time. It's going to end with him saying, and Assyria is going to take you over. It's coming. The distinction is God had history with Moab. God had when I say relationship, I don't mean in the sense of um, you know close fellowship, but um, you know the lineage of Moab traces back up to through Abraham. So there was a connection there. There was a reason why he would say that. Whereas Ethiopia is really not to be hard on them. They're just casualties. They're just um, what would you call it? Um, what's the word? Um, innocent bystander. They're an innocent bystander. They're just people who are going to suffer as just a consequence of other things that are happening. And God's just not going to turn off the spigot just because that happens. So look at how they're described. They're described about Ethiopia. Their description is terrible from the beginning, a place that strikes fear, a nation meted out with great strength, trotted down. They can trample their enemies and whose land the rivers have spoiled, filled with great abundance. This is this great, fertile, beautiful land that is soon going to be crushed and they're looking for help. They're sending an alliance, hopefully, to uh, Judah, thinking if we team up, we can maybe withstand the might of Assyria. But God's message is, I don't need backup. I don't need your help. I can handle Assyria in my own time. Verse 3. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth see you when he has lifted up an ensign, King James says, on the mountains, and when he blows the trumpet, hear you. So see, look, all you inhabitants of the world, when he lifts up the ensign, and listen, everybody, when he blows his trumpet. This is, this is in verse 2, if, the, if the emissaries are coming and God says, I don't need your help, what you're getting here is this message to everybody. This is why God doesn't need an alliance with you. See, when God offers to Moab in the previous chapters, when God offers to Moab the chance to make peace, it was a fellowship, spiritual relationship thing. What Ethiopia wants is an alliance of a military kind. And God says, this is not how this is going to go down. Judah is not going to be saved from Assyria, which they will be. They're not going to be saved from Assyria because their armies are really strong or because they team up with other armies that are strong. They're going to be saved because I am really strong, God says. So what he's saying is, listen, everybody, I'm going to tell you why I'm sending Ethiopia back, why I'm sending back their emissaries, why we're not going to take their uh, offer for assistance. And it's because, listen, everybody, when I blow the horn, listen, everybody, when I raise up the sign, everyone's going to know God did this, not an alliance of men. God is the one doing this. Verse 4, for so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest. And I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Beginning of the verse, verse 4, the Lord said to me, I will take my rest. What does your Bible say? I will partly look for my dwelling. I will look for my dwelling. dwelling quietly. quietly. Everyone have something like that? An adverb like quietly, something like that? All right, here's the point. Ethiopia <coughs> freaked out because they're seeing how easily all these enemies and empires are falling at the hands of Assyria. Uh, Israel 
freaked out because Syria is falling and they're about to fall too. Moab freaked out because once they fall, they're just going to turn around the other side of the Dead Sea and take them to all of these people and places and things are just freaked out because this seemingly unstoppable force is conquering everything. And while everybody's freaking out and everybody's saying, Israel, Syria, we need to team up and make an alliance. Ethiopia, Judah, we need to team up and make an alliance. Israel, Syria, and Judah, we need to team up and make an alliance. And God is like, we're going to take a nap. Okay, it's no big deal. I'll see you later. That's the attitude of God. Listen, when you're on the boat with Jesus and there's a storm and you look back freaking out and Jesus is asleep, this is, this is, this is not a made-up story. This really happened. What should your reaction be? Should it be, A, let's run up and wake the Lord because clearly he doesn't know what's going on. We need to inform him that we're all going to die. That is not the answer, though you would be surprised who in the boat believe that. Or option B, if my master's not freaking out, why should I freak out? The problem with freaking out is it shows a lack of faith. And not just a lack of faith, because you say that if you just leave it at that, what happens is some, a person will think, okay, when I'm a little child, there's a clap of thunder, and I'm scared, does that mean I don't have faith? No, 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 it's, it's deeper than that, okay? It, you have to go deeper than that. When you're old enough and mature enough and you understand a God who can do anything, then when you don't trust that, you show disrespect to God. When you don't acknowledge the fact that he can calm the storm, when you don't acknowledge the fact that he is in control and you freak out, what you're freaking out says to him is, I am going to be in control and I'm going to take everything that I have, I'm going to take all my emotions and all my problems and I'm going to hold them and I'm going to freak out about them. You stay out of it. Whereas God is saying, if you'll just give them to me, I'm just going to put them right under my bed and I'm going to take a big nap and it's going to be okay. And that's the attitude we should have. Instead, we want to take for ourselves our anxiety and freak out about them because then we have control. God says, give up your control. I'm going to take my rest. I'm going to consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs. Just kind of lie there. And a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Everything's just going to be mellow. I'm not worried. Neither should you be. Verse 5. For... Before the harvest, before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with the pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. Assyria, the conquerors, Assyria, this big bad empire, have taken many nations captive. They have turned many free people into slaves. As a result, they have worried Ethiopia, who naturally assume the worst is coming to them. Isaiah's message is, Assyria's time as reapers is coming to an end. They have plucked and plucked and stolen and taken from homelands of all kinds of people, like reapers in the harvest. But Isaiah says, they will soon become the harvest. They will soon be reaped, and I will be doing the reaping. Whatever they're doing, as much as you're scared, you need to be scared of me. And as the old saying goes, if you don't fear God, you fear everything. And if you fear God, you fear nothing, right? So God says, you're worried about them, and they're just plucking grapes. I'm going to uproot entire trees. I'm going to pluck them up. I'm going to uproot them, take from them, cut down their branches, and so forth. Whatever they're doing you're scared of, it will be done to them because I'm in control. Verse 6. They shall be left together unto the fowls of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the fowls shall summer upon them and the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. Are you scared of your enemy? Is the prevailing question of this chapter. Ethiopia represents basically every nation that we've read about so far in this book. They are just the next in line to be conquered. They've conquered everybody else. Why won't they conquer us? Oh boy, here they come. We're all going to die. And God says, relax. It's going to be all right. 
Doesn't mean you won't necessarily be conquered, but I'm in control and I'll take care of it. God says, I'm going to break a serious power. I'm going to leave the empire like a dead carcass. And what happens to dead carcasses in the wilderness? The buzzards fly down from the mountains and pick at them. The wildebeests or whatever, I don't know, I haven't watched The Lion King in a while. Hyenas come in and they start picking at the scavenging of the carcass. That's what God says is going to happen. This big, mighty empire is going to be left to rot, where the animals will spend all their summer and all their winter feasting on what is left. Verse 7. It's hard to be scared of an empire that is described like that, cut down and just eaten up. Verse 7. In that time... Shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts of a people scattered and peeled? King James says, we'll come back to that. And from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to a place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. A lot of the middle of that verse number 7 is lifted straight out of the beginning of this chapter. That's the way God describes who Ethiopia is. There's a little phrase in the middle that's new, though, and I want to get your translation because it's different, I know. Mine describes them as um, a people scattered and peeled. Does anybody have um, tall and smooth? Ah, okay. That's the other translation. Scattered and peeled, I don't know where that came from. Peeled and smooth, I can kind of see. Scattered and tall, I don't know what the thought process was there with translation. But that's just the description of the people of Ethiopia. This people, God is saying, is going to come to pass in, in such a day. The day will come when that people of Ethiopia, who at the beginning of this chapter, are just looking for a military alliance, and they're sending boats up with ambassadors. But the day will come when they will be allied with my people, when we will be together, but not in military union, but in spiritual fellowship. Because what is in the mind of God the end game here? It's not Assyria conquering everything. It's Assyria conquering everything until Assyria is stopped, and then Babylon conquers everything until Babylon is stopped. And then Macedonia, Alexander, conquers everything until they're stopped. Then Rome conquers everything until, in the time of Rome, comes a Messiah who will save everything. Not in a physical kingdom, as he says to Pilate, but with a spiritual kingdom. Wherein all people, whether you're Jew or Gentile like Ethiopia, can come together and be in fellowship. So God is basically taking everything that was done at the beginning of this, and he's saying, no, I don't want that. Here's what I want. If you're going to come to me, come to me in spiritual fellowship, which I'll provide through the Messiah to come. So you're worried about Assyria. That's part of my plan, to bring the Messiah into the world, because through him, we're going to come together. Through him, you're going to come up to Mount Zion. Now, I don't know if it's the case. There's no Bible for this. I am just making this up, okay? So just keep that in the back of your mind. But in my head canon, whenever I read Acts chapter 8, if you remember Acts chapter 8, it begins with um, Philip preaching, converting the Samaritans. And then after that, the Holy Spirit says to Philip, there's this one guy heading back to Ethiopia, heading back that way, because he had come to Jerusalem to worship, being a eunuch, being an Ethiopian. He wasn't allowed to partake in all the practices of worship that the Jews had. So he did what he could, now he's going back to Ethiopia. Go find that guy and preach the gospel to him. So off he goes, and when he finds him, he finds him reading Isaiah the prophet. Now he's reading specifically Isaiah chapter 53, which we're nowhere near that. That's like March, okay? Like next March, we'll get there. All right. But he's reading Isaiah 53, he's reading about the Messiah, and it's from there that Philip launches into the sermon about Jesus. But I just wonder, because it's a long trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem and back. And I wonder if he started, like we all do, a long trip, got to have some reading, so he opens up the beginning of his scroll. And I just wonder if on his way to Jerusalem, he was reading this text. Like in my head, he's reading this text, which promises that the people of Ethiopia will one day come to Mount Zion to worship God. 
So I'm just imagining in my head, he's so excited because he's going to fulfill what this text says. I'm going to get to go to Mount Zion to worship God. And being an Ethiopian eunuch, he's not going to be allowed to worship the way your average run-of-the-mill Jew would do. So I imagine he would leave a little disheartened, you know. And then he meets Philip and is entered into the spiritual body of Jesus. He is added to a spiritual kingdom wherein he can worship God, where he can actually fulfill what this verse and this prophecy is really saying, where all people, Ethiopian, Jew, anybody, can be one in God through Jesus Christ, bringing this prophecy to fruition. That's just that's what I think about when I read um, Acts 8. All right, that's chapter 18. Turn the page now, chapter 19. We had Ethiopia. You notice not a lot of negative no rebuke. It was just, they want a military alliance, but oh, we're not going to go that way. Spiritual is coming through the Messiah. And that's it. Nevertheless, bad things coming. Then we come to Egypt. Another nation like Moab, about whom God has much history, and it ain't good. So how does it begin? Not with woe. What's your Bible say at the beginning of verse 1? Oracles or the burden. The, the inspired word of doom, literally, of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt. And the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. Do you just see instant tone change? Everything is sweet and sympathetic and wonderful with Ethiopia, and now it's just, and you, donkey nation, God's coming for you. That's verse 1. The woe word of doom to Egypt. Behold, God is riding in on a swift cloud. His justice, fast. In its approach. And it shall come and settle on Egypt and all the idols, the idols that Moses and the plagues of Egypt one by one summarily overthrew. You worship the Nile, I'll turn it to blood. You worship the frogs, I'll make them a plague. You worship the sky, I'll make it dark. You worship the rain, I'll make it hail fire. You worship death, the god of the underworld, I'll kill all your firstborn. God after God after God after God of Egypt is smacked down, beaten up, and shown their place. And yet after they're gone, who do they cry to? Oh, our slave labor is gone. Let's cry to our gods again. They never learned. And here they are again, crying to their idols. And God says, your idols that you place on your pedestal are going to rumble at my approach. Metaphor, but it's a powerful picture. I'm going to roll into town, cause an earthquake, and all of your idols on their mantles are going to shake, rattle, and roll off the cliff. And the heart of Egypt will just melt, go down to their stomachs, and disappear. Verse 2, And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight everyone against his brother, and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The text of this chapter really is divided into two parts. You have the opening half, which describes the reason for Egypt's fall, and the latter half is the aftermath. The reason, Isaiah predicts, is there's a civil war coming to Egypt, and history bears it out around this time period. Um, but Sometime between the 22nd and the 25th dynasties, um, of the pharaohs of Egypt, big split that eventually gets reconciled and so forth. But this is the prediction that Isaiah is making here. Egyptian set against Egyptian. Notice, I will set Egyptian against Egyptian. This is not God just observing it through a telescope like a nosy neighbor. This is God saying, I'm putting the pawns on the board where I want them. I'm arranging the world as I want it. And it's going to happen by my providence, this conflict. Household, brother against brother, acquaintances, neighbors, land, city against city, the whole of Egypt. Split in twain. Verse 3. And the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof. The uh, My Bible says spirit of Egypt. What does your Bible say? Spirit of Egypt. 
the spirit of the Egyptians, it's a reference to their gods. It's a reference to their, their appeal to their higher powers. But you'll see that as we go through the context. Look at the next phrase. And I will destroy the counsel thereof, and they shall seek to the idols and to the charmers and to them of familiar spirits and to the wizards. King James says, but it's not like Merlin's beard. It's something else. It's, these are all conjurers and necromancers, people who uh, said they could commune with the dead. They could tell you what the spirits say. They're going to appeal to the spirits, and all the spirits of Egypt will fail them. That's the, the beginning of the verse kind of sets the tone, and then you break it down to, to the particulars. You're going to appeal to your spirits. You're going to appeal to your higher powers, which to you it's lower powers because you're going to try and conjure them up from the ground. And have your sorcerers and your wizards and those sort of names uh, be the people to tell us what to do. Well, listen, a dead thing cannot stop the power of the living God. But that's all they've got. Verse 4. In the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel Lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, says the sovereign one Jehovah of the armies, literally. There are, in fact, a plurality of tyrants. There's a, a parade, a train, one card after another of evil people who are going to just um, destroy uh, Egypt and rebuild it in its own image over and over and over. And which one is Isaiah describing? It's like all of them. It's, there may be one in particular in his mind, but I don't know. But you've got Sennacherib, who is the current Assyrian emperor. He's on his way, but he'll be dead before the empire gets to Ethiopia. But Esar Hayden will not. Esar Hayden of Assyria will take Ethiopia and Egypt. Um, and Ashurbanipal will, will linger there. And he will set up his own images and his own temples in that uh, land, Egypt and Ethiopia. And then once Assyria is gone, that's fine. In comes Nebuchadnezzar. And he'll be even more cruel and even more vindictive. And they'll, they'll beg for deliverance from Ethiopia like the Jews did from Egypt. And then they'll get it. But then what will come next is Xerxes and the Assyrians. And they'll be praised as liberators. But they'll be just as wicked. And then by the time they're done with them, in will come Alexander, who will be just as bad. And then after he's done, the Romans will take over. And then you come to the time of Christ, and it gets a whole different thing. But that's the idea. In this whole period of time, one wicked ruler after another, a, my Bible calls him cruel lord or fierce king, is going to come in. Your, your kingdom is going to be split, and taking advantage of it is all manner of evil rulers. In the midst of all this, verse 5, natural catastrophe will come. The waters shall fail from the sea. Again, that's the Nile. And the river shall be wasted and dried up. I don't need to tell you because I know you know how uh, vital the Nile River is to the economy of Egypt. You take away the Nile, and I'm not saying God is predicting an absolute 100% drought. There's nothing there but dirt. But just a just a typical drought withdrawing, drawing in of the Nile where it's not as vibrant as it once was. Take that away from Egypt. And what do they have? Sand. That's like that's all they have. That's their entire economy built around it. Like taking away maple trees from Canada. What do they have to offer the world? Manners? Like that's it, right? So that's how critical it is to their society. So I'm God is saying here, I'm going to take away, I'm going to make parched the Red the Nile River and the Red Sea from your lands. Now, what you'll get when you read like scholars and commentaries and things like that is two different perspectives. Is this metaphorical or is it literal? Because it, it's, not, it's not against God and his writing to write something like this in a metaphorical sense. 
But as you go through the whole text, it's literal every time. A, a literal king is coming to conquer them. And history bears it out. A literal civil war is coming to split them. And history bears it out. I see no reason why it wouldn't be a literal drought that's going to cripple them and make them even that much more fragile and easily conquered by the time Assyria gets there. So I take it literally. Verse 6. And they shall turn the rivers far away, and the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried up. The reeds and flags shall uh, wither. Again, basically life lives around the, these waters, these bodies of water. And when the Nile dries up, this chain reaction is going to occur. They're going to lose their natural defenses. They're going to lose their chief export. They're going to lose their morale as a nation. Because the Nile is more than just a river to the people. It is God to the people. And Assyria is going to march in right in the middle of a depression, right in the middle of an economic downturn, a social downturn, and take them really without any kind of resistance at all. And as it says in the text, with most of the water receded, the rivers turn far away, the rivers will stagnate and be of no value to them whatever they do have. And the reeds and flags, you know, the vegetation growing around it will wither. Verse 7. The paper reeds by the brooks, by the mouth of the brooks, and everything sown by the brooks shall wither, be driven away, and be no more. Again, without a healthy Nile, the entire agricultural industry of Egypt is broken. And not only the particular plants, like it mentions the reeds by the brooks, but everything planted on the fertile land is going to be, anything that hugs the region of the Nile is going to be dried up and ruined. Mine says withered away and driven away carried off dried, dead dust in the wind. Verse 8. The fishers also shall mourn, and all that cast the angle into the brook shall lament, and they that spread nets upon the waters shall languish. So you got the morale of the nation, verse 6, that's going to suffer. The agricultural industry of the nation, verse 7, that's going to suffer. And now the people, the, the low class of the people will suffer. The, the backbone of any nation and any economy is its middle and low class, the people doing the grunt work. The rich people are just going to suffer you know, a financial loss, a write-off, whatever the 700 BC equivalent is of a tax write-off. But the, the, the bread and butter of the nation, they're the ones who are really going to be suffering. The person who casts the fish, fishing line into the water for, for livelihood as well as just dinner is going to suffer, which to them is the same thing going to suffer verse um well hang on every now and then i write myself little notes but i have to check what i wrote here like i write to matthew make sure you say blah 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 and then i disagree with myself no i don't want to say that matthew. All right. verse nine verse nine moreover i'll argue with myself later about it moreover they that work in fine flax the king james says and they that weave networks shall be confounded this is not internet people um, fine flax. Do you have anybody have linen? You have linen? Yeah, that's it's a material. Um, Egyptian cotton today is a luxury, if I recall correctly. I don't buy beddings, but I'm pretty sure it's. Yeah, my wife says yes. But Egyptian cotton in Egypt, just cotton, right? But it's that is the the you know a chief export. Well, it's all going to suffer, and so there goes your economy. Uh, so this is where the rich people are going to take their hit. Oh no, the rich people. But this is where they're going to this, this is where they're going to suffer. Um, verse ten. Because the fisherman is not exporting his fish. He's just selling it local. But the cotton's going everywhere. So that's where your rich people are going to suffer. So everybody talked about them. Verse 10. And they shall be broken in the, my Bible says, purposes thereof. That's a bad translation. It should be pillars or maybe foundations thereof. All that make um, places and ponds for fish. Does, uh, does anybody have pillars? The land. The land. So like the foundation is what it means there. Right. 
pillars of the land. Yeah. So what is what is holding up? What is the bedrock of the Egyptian society? Like in America, it's our agricultural export. That's that's basically the bedrock of our economy in terms of what we send out. So imagine if some major catastrophe happened that we couldn't export all of our goods. Well, we might be okay for a while, but eventually we're going to start to, to crumble within. And that's what's going to happen here to Egypt. Um, this is all they have to send out to get money and to go uh, so forth. And it's all going to be dried up in metaphorical and literal sense. Verse 11. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools, and the counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh is become brutish. How, shall, how say you unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. The princes of Zoan. Zoan in Isaiah's day was the modern city of Tanis. If you're familiar with Tanis or familiar with, um, I think it was in Raiders of the Lost Ark. They go to Tanis to find the ark. It's not there, but that's where it was in the movie. Um, Zoan, that's the place. So major um, city of Egypt, about 90 miles north of Cairo um, on the current map. And it's going to be like front line to the Assyrian invasion. Well, it's you're going down. And the princes were the messengers, the counselors, that were sent to Pharaoh, warning him of the invaders. And they are described as, the King James calls them brutish. Does your Bible say overconfident? Uh, it's the princes of Zoan are fools. The council of the wise of Pharaoh are brutish. Anybody have anything different? You said stupid? What translation is that? It's my new favorite. Yeah. Yeah, what it means, overconfident in their own strength, which is a form of stupidity. I mean, it's not like unintelligent. It's a willful willful ignorance. It's a different kind of stupid. It's much more frustrating kind of stupid. I can deal with a stupid person who wants to learn. But when you don't want to learn, I have no patience for that kind of stupid. Well, that's this kind of stupid. So they basically their attitude is, we're, we're, we're in, clearly we're in big trouble, but I'm sure it'll just all blow over. This is not going to be a big deal. We can handle it. In other words, they declare their mental superiority. We're the children of the wise. They declare their culture and nobility will withstand them. We are the son of ancient kings. We're too big to fail, to use a modern phrase. Surely they're not going to take out Egypt. Egypt is Egypt. They're talking about like one of the oldest at this time, uh, you know, continually dominant geopolitical forces in the whole world as it's known. They're going to take out Egypt. 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 Arrogance of Egypt. Verse 12. Where are they? This is Isaiah, though I'd like to believe it's God speaking. Where are they? Where are your wise men? It's like he's, he's like God puts his infinite ear and listens in on the conversations of the Egyptian rulers, the war strategizers, the people getting the, 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 the first news about the Assyrian invasion that's uncoming. And he listens to their attitude saying, oh no, we're too wise for this. We're too strong for this. And God listening says, where? Where, where are the wise? I don't see any wise people. There's no wise people in Egypt. Where are they? Let them tell me now, and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed upon Egypt. You say you're wise, tell me what I'm planning. Tell me what I got coming tomorrow, because I guarantee I know, and I guarantee you don't. So tell me, wise people, what's coming, if you think you're so wise. You don't. I've seen your future, Egypt. Not a pretty picture. Verse 13. The princes of um, Wait. Wait. Okay, yeah, it repeats itself. I thought I typed it wrong. Verse 13. The princes of Zoan are become fools. The princes of Noph, the King James says, are deceived. They have also seduced Egypt, even that they are the stay of the tribes thereof. Mine says Noph. Does yours say Moph or Memphis? Memphis. Yeah, Memphis, yeah. Noph, Moph, Memphis. That's the etymology. Memphis, not like where the king lives, but Memphis where the pharaoh lives. Um, the famous city once of capital of Egypt. 
and it's kind of like, um, like, uh, what's a good equivalent? Um, I guess there isn't one. It, but imagine a city that is like New York City. New York City, not the capital of the United States of America. But if an invading enemy came in and took out Baltimore, okay, well, that's a big deal. It's Baltimore, but we'll get over it. But if they take out New York City, that's like an icon, right? And icon, what happened to 9-11? They, didn't, they, they tried, but they didn't get the capital. They got the Pentagon, but that's Virginia. That doesn't count. But, but the icon, the imagery of the two towers going down, that's, that's like, uh, well, to say the word again, an icon. Well, that's what Memphis is to Egypt. It's like the first real major city as you're coming in from the northeast. You're coming in from you know, Canaan and all that where Assyria is going to be marching in. Memphis is going to be your first real big city, and it's going to go down. That's going to be like, I would like to say a wake-up call, but we've already established they're stupid people, so it probably won't be. But that's the idea. That's this icon of the Egyptian dynasty going down. And the consequences of the fools of the counselors and the foolish advice they've been given is all of Egypt has been seduced into believing this is not a big deal. And to believing that they have enough um, you know, military, economic, and history to stand it, to withstand it all. Verse 14. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in the midst thereof, in the midst of the counselors. Like God, again, is looking down and seeing these wise people so-called of Egypt talking about everything's going to be okay. And you think, how can you, us, looking back historically, how can you be so overconfident when you've seen everything that uh, Assyria is capable of? Like just south of you is, is Ethiopia. We've already established in the previous chapter, they saw the same flat red flags, and what did they do? we got to get an alliance going. But Egypt is like, eh, it's fine. And so you're looking at it, you're wondering, how can you be so stupid? And now God is saying, well, I got in there in the middle of it, and I just kind of stirred the pot. I just kind of stirred it up a little bit. The Lord has, my Bible says mingled, but that's the idea, I stirred. He's mingled within the midst of those councils a, the King James calls it perverse spirit. What does your Bible say? Spirit of confusion. Spirit of confusion. Perfect. He calls them fools, fools, fools. Well, what is a fool but a confused person? I've stirred up a spirit of confusion in the midst thereof and have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof like a drunken man that staggers in his vomit, the King James says. Is that what yours says? All right, if you've seen one long enough, you've seen one slip on his own vomit. That's the same idea. So why is God doing this? It seems like such a jerk move, the way it's described, but that's not what it is. It's God saying that it's the same as, to use Egypt as an example, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And if you don't understand the phraseology and the meaning behind it, it's, it's one of those famous Bible questions. Why is God causing Pharaoh to say no to the question he's sending Moses to ask? Let my people go. I don't understand why. Why is God saying to Moses, tell him to let you go, but then making Pharaoh say no? Well, it's because God is not literally making Pharaoh say no. It's that if you actually read the text and don't just watch Yul Brenner, you read the text, Pharaoh a couple of times says, yes, it's just with conditions. I'll let you go worship your God in the mountain, but come back and be my slaves again. That's not the deal. And so God... The way God hardens Pharaoh's or anybody's heart, Pharaoh or just some guy, the way God hardens anyone's heart is the same. God makes a commandment, and if you don't like it, it's not changing. God set the law. God said, here's what I expect you to do, and you don't like it. You don't want to do it. You want to be stubborn. You want to be angry. You want to run the other way. God says, well, it is what it is. I'm not changing the law just because you pout about it. So let my people go unequivocally. You're going to give them your gold on their way out of town. They're going to come be my people. They're going to be completely free of your shackles. No conditions, no exceptions. That's the deal. 
And Pharaoh says, I'm not taking that deal. And God said, well, as I said, that's the deal. So plague number one. I'm not taking that deal. Well, that was the deal. Plague number two. So and every time God gave a new plague, Pharaoh got more stubborn and more bitter. And he got more stubborn and more bitter because God kept giving him more plagues. So God would naturally, rightly say, well, I'm hardening his heart with every one of these plagues. But I must harden his heart in that case. I must give the plagues because I'm not changing my law. But I'm not going to not punish him. I'm not going to, I'm going to break him eventually. And sure enough, he did after the 10. But that's the idea of hardening a heart. It's when God makes a law, which is any law, that he's not going to bend on. He's not going to break. He's going to make it. You take it or leave it. And people will have a stubborn, prideful heart. And they'll say, well, I leave it. And God says, well, that was an option. You're going to go to hell, but you can take it or leave it. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stand right here with the same law. And when you're ready to come back, the same law is going to be waiting for you. And, you're, and you walk away. Well, your heart's hardened. God did it because he didn't change his law. But that's the breaks. So take that same idea and apply it here. God says, I am going to create a situation where basically I'm just going to stoke the fires of what is already present. Foolish people and their pride. And I am not going to slow Assyria down. I'm not going to provide them warning signs in the sky. I'm just going to keep them coming. They saw, as I said, they saw the same warning signs that Ethiopia did. And Ethiopia was wise. If they want to be foolish, they're getting the same warning signs. I'm not changing it. I'm not going to slow them down or move them around. It's going to be the same thing. And if you want to be foolish, well, then you'll be doubly foolish as I double down on bringing Assyria down to you. And so in that sense, God is just allowing them to be what they naturally want to be. And he's not going to change, even if not changing makes it worse for them by their choices. So, in that sense, I've caused Egypt to err in every work thereof, because they don't know which way is left or right. They're just all over the place confused, like a drunk guy slipping on his vomit. Verse 15. Neither shall there be any work for Egypt, which the head, tail, branch, or rush may do. In other words, there's no silver lining. Soon you're going to be in the middle of an economic ruin, in the middle of a chaotic scene, your wealthy cannot absorb the financial ruin that's coming. Your, your poor cannot withstand the depression uh, that's coming. Your, your, your very poorest will die. Your middle class will become poor. Your very rich will become middle class. It's going to be an absolute disaster for everybody. Everybody suffers top to bottom. Verse 16. In that day shall Egypt be likened to a woman, which it's kind of an incomplete thought, but like a woman that sees a spider to be to be generalized all right it's that god inspires the idea i'm just saying you tend to be jittery that's the idea all right you're gonna be shaken in your boots my wife is much braver than i am i'm just saying it's a generalization yeah in that case yes yeah i'm usually the one who makes that sound and even i lift up the one leg and she'll she'll come in with the hammer but anyway anyway that's the idea though generally speaking the actual girly people uh, will be scared. And that'll be Egypt. And it shall be afraid and fear. Two different words. Because the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shakes over it. So God, um, you know, anthropomorphically, metaphorically, brings his fist down and shakes it at them in his anger. And the sight of it, the sight of the father with the ripping the belt off his belt right up, you know, over your backside. The sight of that is going to cause them all to be in terror. My Bible uses two words, afraid and fear. The first one means to shudder. Second one means to be startled. <gasps> you know, first you gasp, then you pee yourself. That's the idea. Verse 17. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Everyone that makes mention thereof shall be afraid in himself, because the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. Um, 
Never in the long history of Egypt and Judah has Egypt ever been afraid of Judah. They were either, you know, neutral, not aggressors at all, or Egypt just didn't care. Post-Exodus, they have basically nothing to do with each other. But now the prophecy is you're going to be startled, frozen in terror at the thought of the land of Judah. How is Judah going to become a terror unto Egypt? Well, as he explains at the end of the verse, the fear will be because of who Judah serves. See, at the beginning of this chapter, Egypt is crying to their gods. Well, at the end of Judah's captivity, they're going to be crying to their god. And so through God, Judah is going to be a terrifying force because the same God that's shaking his fist and causing them to you know, freak out is the God who's like a mother hen protecting over Judah. Verse 18. In that day shall five seas in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts one shall be called the city of destruction. When is Egypt going to swear fealty to the Lord of hosts? Because if you read the text from like a literal standpoint, it sounds like the prophecy is, oh, big bad Judah is going to rise up and conquer Egypt. Well, that never happens in their history. But as we've read in this book, you'll read it when you get to Ezekiel, whenever I teach that, like 10 years from now, and you get a little bit in Daniel too. One, one of the ways, Daniel as well, one of the ways the prophets write about the heir of the Messiah is from a very militaristic standpoint. You get this in Revelation too. That salvation and conversion and coming into the kingdom of Christ is written as a military conquest because that's the mentality of these people when they think of victory over a nation. But God's mentality is victory over this nation is them accepting the Savior and being saved by the Messiah. But how do I translate that into language that these people understand? And they understand it in military terms. So Judah is going to submit to Canaan. Well, it's already established in the previous verse that they're only afraid of Judah. Judah's going to submit to, sorry, Egypt's going to submit to Judah. It's already established in the previous verse that they're only afraid of Judah because of Judah's Messiah. So why will they submit to Judah? Because of Judah's Messiah. So how will they submit to Judah's Messiah? We've already established in this text the Messiah is coming. So they'll submit to him, Judah's God, they'll submit to him through the Christ to come. So you, you kind of take the, 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 the thought and you just kind of connect the dots. It's not plucking verses out of context and filling in the blank however you want. It's just taking what's the natural thought process behind this verse and this verse and this verse and do they fit together and they do. And they all tie into the Messiah is coming to save. And I am viewing that through the prism of conquest. And so you'll be submitting to the people of the Messiah, which in Isaiah is the Jews. Verse 19, same mentality, same uh, context. In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. When the Messiah comes, Egypt will worship him. Not all of Egypt, but those who worship will have the means and the opportunity to worship the Messiah. And again, through this uh, present day context, it looks like an altar and a memorial pillar. Things with, which we do not use to worship Jesus. Like we do not go to a stone altar and offer a sacrifice. We do not raise up a monument and worship it. But that's how the Egyptians thought of worshiping gods. And all Isaiah is doing is taking that imagery and applying it to Christianity as we come to know it. You'll take that worship and you'll apply it not to your, your fake gods, but to the Messiah who will come. That's the idea. That's the prophecy. Verse 20. And it shall be a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. This metaphorical obelisk that you're going to raise up 
is the symbol of the Savior that is coming to deliver you. It just seems messianic to me. Verse 21. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord. And by the way, this thing that you raise up that symbolizes the Savior, I don't know, it seems like the cross, because that's what Jesus calls it. This thing that's going to raise him up. To, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So that's from Jesus' perspective in John 12. When I am lifted up as this, this symbol for all to see, which is how Isaiah describes it a few chapters ago. When I'm lifted up for all to see, I'll draw all men unto me. So that's from the perspective of Christ. Isaiah 19 is from the perspective of Egypt. This thing has been lifted up, and I am drawn to him. Same idea, just from two different perspectives. Very quickly, do we have time? No, we don't. We'll have to stop. All right, we'll finish 19, and we'll go into the next chapter, because that's the second bill. That's all I got. Thanks, you guys, very much.